0: Faye, I don't know about you, but I've been out on the road now for some of these MFM fellowship interviews, and I got to say, one thing that I'm nervous about is I don't really know how to ultrasound.
1: Nick, I don't know how to ultrasound either, but I guess they're going to teach us how to do that in MFM fellowship. But good news for us, we may have a leg up because we've been using the OBG Project's second trimester ultrasound atlas.
0: That's right. I've been able to take a look and figure out what normal looks like thanks to the second trimester atlas that has tons and tons of pictures online. So that way you know exactly what you're supposed to be looking for. And also, if it's not normal, you know exactly what you're not supposed to be looking for.
1: I know that I will be definitely using this also during MFM Fellowship. So if you want to also take a look at the OBG Project Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas, which is super helpful, not just for MFM Fellows, but also for OBGYN residents, you can go ahead and go online and take a look. We'll be posting a link on our website.
0: The Second Trimester Atlas comes along for free with OBG First. OBG First is the premium product from the OBG Project. It allows you to get clinical guidelines, updates, and summaries to your phone every single day, as well as saving it in a personalized library. Find out how you can get it from us for free if you're a fourth-year resident at www.creeegsovercoffee.com.
1: All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we will be talking about abnormal uterine bleeding. So Nick, what are our learning objectives? We've
0: got a couple today. So number one, we're going to talk really about the etiologies of abnormal uterine bleeding. Next, we're going to talk about a workup for AUB. Then we'll talk about differential diagnoses, and really we're going to stratify these out by age groups. And it's kind of not really a learning objective for today, but just as a reminder, we're not going to be discussing treatment because this is really going to depend on the etiology. So as we always say, look forward to a future episode. Faye, get us kicked off. This is a really good question, I think. What is normal uterine bleeding?
1: So normal uterine bleeding is going to be different for every woman. but. Generally, we say that a normal menstrual cycle typically lasts between 21 to 35 days, and the duration of normal flow is typically around 5 days, though we can average that out to between 3 to 7 days of bleeding. So if that's normal uterine bleeding, what about abnormal uterine bleeding, Nick?
0: Abnormal bleeding, again, you can kind of talk about it in a number of different ways, right? And depending on where you are in the country and how your faculty kind of look at it, there are a number of terms that at this point we kind of describe as maybe a little bit outdated, um, but we use them here just so that way for your reference. Heavy menstrual bleeding is one such manifestation of abnormal bleeding, also known as menorrhagia. There's also irregular menstrual bleeding, metrorrhagia. And there's polymenorrhea and oligomenorrhea for either bleeding that is more often than 21 days in the case of polymenorrhea or less often than every 35 days in the case of oligomenorrhea. All of these have also replaced the oldest term of dysfunctional uterine bleeding that doesn't really give us any sort of indication of what's wrong with the bleeding. So, Faye, I guess, kind of, since we've defined again, polymenorrhea is bleeding more often than every 21 days, oligomenorrhea, bleeding less often than every 35 days. Like, how on earth do we identify heavy menstrual bleeding? Because, you no, know, I think people come in and they say in the office, like, I'm bleeding heavy, but I don't know how to really quantify that or how to measure that. Do you?
1: Traditionally, the amount of bleeding for heavy menstrual bleeding is considered greater than 80 milliliters of bleeding during one cycle. But That amount of bleeding is really logistically hard to quantify, right? Because what are you going to do? Ask your patient to bring in all of their menstrual products and then weigh them. Like, it's just very difficult to do. And so really that greater than 80 cc's of bleeding during one cycle has really just been used for research purposes. And we typically say heavy menstrual bleeding is based on patient report. Got it. So we've talked about what AUB is. How should we think about how we categorize abnormal uterine bleeding?
0: Kind of the FIGO classification system is probably what most of us are familiar with, the old POM-COIN or POM-COIN, depending on where you are. The two words mean two different causes of bleeding, POM being structural and COIN or Cohen being non-structural bleeding. Um, so to go through the first part of the acronym, POM, P are, is for polyps. A is for adenomyosis, Um, adenomyosis meaning endometrial cells that are contained within the myometrium. L is for leiomyoma or fibroids, and those could be submucosal fibroids or non-submucosal fibroids as the case may be. And then lastly is M for malignancy or endometrial hyperplasia. Faye, what about non-structural causes?
1: So non-structural causes kind of is everything else. So these things you can think of as C, coagulopathy, O, ovulatory, where you can think of some dysregulation from the HPO axis in the case of PCOS, which we've already talked about in previous episodes. Um, It could be endometrial, which is something inherently wrong with the endometrium. It could be iatrogenic. So for example, giving your patient a Nexplanon, and that could cause them to have irregular spotting or bleeding. Or N, which is not yet classified. So when we talk about AUB, you really try to classify your type. So when you give someone the diagnosis of AUB, if you know what is causing it, you would say, for example, this patient has a diagnosis of AUBP or polyps. So speaking of diagnosis, Nick, how do we actually diagnose abnormal uterine bleeding?
0: Yeah. So kind of like everything else, you got to start off with a history, right? And really with the history, you want to start to characterize the bleeding because a lot of those details can help you narrow down your diagnosis. Um, So with respect to the bleeding itself, you want to know what the bleeding pattern is. Is it regular? Is it irregular? Does it seem very heavy or is it just intermenstrual spotting or light bleeding? Is there pain that's associated with the bleeding or is there pain during other times of the cycle that may not be associated with bleeding? You can kind of look at this with respect to ovulatory status, you know, on the basis of either regular bleeding or regular cyclic pain. Other things in the history that can be important include family history. Up to 20% of women who present with heavy menstrual bleeding will have an underlying bleeding disorder. And thinking about those kind of underlying bleeding disorders, a lot of the questions that we think about are always I have to look up are, when do we start a workup for other disorders of hemostasis? Um, There's actually pretty simple criteria to initiate a workup for like uh, Von Willebrand's disease or other hemostatic disorders. And that includes a history of heavy menstrual bleeding since Menarche, as well as one of the major criteria, which are a history of postpartum hemorrhage, a history of surgery related bleeding, or a history of bleeding associated with dental work. Or if in absence of one of those major criteria, you can have two or more of minor criteria, which include bruising one to two times a month, nosebleeds or epistaxis one to two times a month, or a history of frequent gum bleeding, or a family history of uh, bleeding symptoms. Um, So again, just to summarize that, you need to have heavy menstrual bleeding since Menarch and one of the following postpartum hemorrhage, surgery-related hemorrhage, or bleeding-associated dental work, or bruising one to two times a month, nosebleeds one to two times a month, and a report of frequent gum bleeding or a family history of bleeding. Those things should prompt you to, again, look for other disorders of hemostasis. The last thing on history that we'll cover are medications, Um, things like anticoagulants, NSAID use, contraceptive use, um, even things like supplements and herbs, because those can either impact the metabolism of other medications or impact the coagulation um, cascade itself. Faye, if we move on from the history, um, what are we going to look for on our exam and our laboratory testing?
1: On exam, you want to look for different reasons that could cause abnormal uterine bleeding. So for example, you could look for signs of PCOS like hirsutism and acne, or you can look for weight gain. You can also look for signs of thyroid disease, so someone who has thyroid nodules or has uh, a lot of sweating or potentially has gained or lost a lot of weight in a short amount of time. You can also look for signs of insulin resistance like acanthosis nigricans on the neck um, or other signs of bleeding disorders like petechiae, uh, multiple bruises or ecchymosis, skin pallor or swollen joints. You would of course also want to do a pelvic exam. In terms of laboratory testing, you always want to complete a pregnancy test because you don't want to continue your workup if someone's pregnant yep. and they're having spotting because you know they're having their implantation bleed, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely
1: if someone's coming to you with abnormal uterine bleeding or heavy bleeding, you want to make sure that um, they're not dropping their hemoglobin too much to a dangerous point. So you want to get a CBC. But that CBC is also important for you to look at things like their platelets, which may prompt you to also do other workup for other bleeding disorders. You also want to take a look at TSH because both hyper and hypothyroidism can be associated with abnormal uterine bleeding and of course cervical cancer screening. If someone's at high risk, you can also consider doing gonorrhea chlamydia testing. And then we did talk about targeted screening for bleeding disorders if indicated. So you can look at their prothrombin time or their partial thromboplastin time. And then based on the findings of initial tests, if their history suggests other bleeding conditions, you can do specific tests for von Willebrands or other coagulopathies. Let's say we've done our lab testing, we've done our physical exam, we've done our history. What is our next step in diagnosis?
0: Yeah, so the next thing that you might think about, depending again, we'll get to differentials based on age, but one other adjunct is imaging, right? So if we're going to take a look at imaging, again, like everything else, that seems like in GYN, our primary imaging modality is going to be a pelvic ultrasound and preferentially transvaginal ultrasound. This will give you a sense of the uterus, of the ovaries, and give you overall like a pretty good starting point in your differential. Other things you can consider include a sonohisterogram or an in-office hysteroscopy to, again, evaluate the cavity. Look for those things like polyps or submucosal fibroids. In adolescence, transabdominal ultrasound may be more appropriate because, again, they may not have had pelvic exams before. They may not be able to tolerate vaginal ultrasound. And again, if you're looking for just like the presence or absence of certain pelvic organs or looking for rare things like ovarian tumors, transabdominal ultrasounds usually will get the job done there. The last thing, Faye, that I never remember, it's always something I got to look up again, is especially for like the perimenopausal, postmenopausal woman, what is the deal with this endometrial lining thickness?
1: Yes. So endometrial lining thickness is really only useful in someone who is postmenopausal. The value of the endometrial lining thickness is to rule out malignancy. So in someone who's premenopausal, they may be, you know, a day 21 of their cycle, they may be having their period, their endometrial lining could be anywhere from one millimeter to three centimeters. So all of that could be normal for somebody. However, in a postmenopausal woman with bleeding, a lining that's greater than four millimeters should prompt further evaluation. However, in a woman who doesn't have any postmenopausal bleeding, if they for some reason got a pelvic ultrasound for another reason, the current suggestion is doing further workup for a lining that is greater than 11 millimeters. So this brings us to a good point. So we talked about imaging and laboratory testing. In someone who has heavy bleeding, In some patients, we also do tissue sampling. So can you talk a little bit about when we would do that and why we would do that, Nick? Exactly, yeah.
0: So with tissue sampling, the role of this really, again, is to rule out, as you said, Faye, hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. Um, And again, the population we're thinking about with this, generally a little bit older. This really should be performed in patients greater than 45 years old as a first-line test in the setting of abnormal bleeding. In patients younger than age 45, if there's a concern for unopposed estrogen exposure, for instance, in medical problems like obesity or PCOS, or if patients have failed medical management and have persistent bleeding, they should be considered as well for tissue sampling. The first line procedure would be an in-office endometrial biopsy. An endometrial biopsy, again, is done easily in the office with an endometrial pipelle. It overall has really good accuracy. So the endometrial biopsy, even though it's a small tissue sample, it actually has a pretty good accuracy overall, provided that you have adequate specimen and that the endometrial hyperplasia or malignancy is a global process. If the endometrial malignancy or hyperplasia is more focal, though, meaning that it occupies less than 50% of the surface area of the cavity, cancers can be missed. So if you have persistent bleeding, Um, or have concern, you should move on to hysteroscopy and potentially further cavity sampling with something like dilation and curatage. All right, Faye. So I think that brings us now to talking about differential diagnoses. And I've been taught at least, and I think it's very helpful to categorize these by age.
1: Yes, absolutely. And again, we're going to talk more about these common differential diagnoses, but this certainly doesn't mean that in patients who are younger that you're not seeing cancer. Um, those are still definitely possible, but today we're going to talk about what is most common. So let's start off with our first age group, which are our teenagers or our adolescents, those ages 13 to 18. In many of these patients, the most likely cause of abnormal uterine bleeding is due to persistent anovulation due to immaturity or dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access. Um, And this can actually represent normal physiology. So other reasons could be hormonal contraceptive use, pregnancy, pelvic infection, and then of course, these are the patients that you may see coagulopathies and be the first to diagnose that, or tumors. What about our next age group, Nick? Yeah,
0: so now we're thinking reproductive age women, um, and we'll characterize this as ages 19 to 39 for simplicity. Um, Most frequently, you should be thinking about pregnancy in this group. Again, early pregnancy bleeding should not be missed. Don't let somebody in this age group, or even somebody who's older and is having menstrual cycles, leave your office without a pregnancy test. If you rule out pregnancy... Consider structural lesions. Um, Polyps or fibroids often pop up during this age period. Anovulatory cycles are also a common culprit in conditions such as PCOS. Counseling patients about side effects of hormonal contraception and bleeding profiles is also important because this can lead to office visits for regular bleeding. And then lastly, um, with appropriate risk factors as we described before, such as PCOS or obesity, um, you should consider hyperplasia. What do we have last, Faye?
1: So our last group of patients are those that are aged from 40 to menopause. So these patients may be having abnormal uterine bleeding due to anovulatory bleeding, which can be normal due to declining ovarian function. However, this age group is also the age group that is more likely to have endometrial hyperplasia or carcinoma or endometrial atrophy and fibroids and polyps. So all of these structural causes should not be ruled out. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our abnormal uterine bleeding episode. Um, why don't we go ahead and sum up?
0: So again, we talked about what normal and abnormal uterine bleeding look like. Normal bleeding, again, is a menstrual cycle generally between 21 to 35 days with flow lasting around five. Um, but you may still hear the terms such as heavy menstrual bleeding or menorrhagia, irregular menstrual bleeding or metrorrhagia, polymenorrhea, oligomenorrhea, um, or the oldest term, dysfunctional uterine bleeding, which is now more or less replaced.
1: We categorize AUB thinking about both structural causes and non-structural causes, and thinking about the mnemonic Palm coin Palm being the structural causes of polyps, adenomyosis, leiomyomas, and malignancy or hyperplasia, and the non-structural causes, COIN, being coagulopathy, ovulatory, endometrial, iatrogenic, or not yet classified.
0: In terms of diagnosing AUB, again, a lot relies on your initial history and physical examination. You want to characterize the bleeding itself. You want to think about family history. Again, you want to think about disorders of hemostasis in the appropriate population. And on our website, we'll have those criteria listed once more. um, So that way you have those as a quick reference and the possibility of any medicines that may be contributing. Physical exam can point to PCOS, insulin resistance, or bleeding disorders. Um, And don't forget about that pelvic exam.
1: Laboratory testing should definitely include a pregnancy test and also a CBC and TSH, as well as cervical cancer screening. If a patient is at high risk, they should also be screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And if you suspect it, they can also be screened for targeted bleeding disorders. Imaging is usually a transvaginal ultrasound. However, um, in adolescents, a transabdominal ultrasound may be appropriate. And we can also consider a sonohistogram if you want to further evaluate the cavity.
0: Tissue sampling, usually performed via in-office endometrial biopsy, should always be performed in patients over 45 years old as a first-line test, and in patients younger than 45 if there's a history of unopposed estrogen exposure or if they've failed medical management.
1: We then talked about the common differential diagnoses by age. So in patients who are 13 to 18, these patients are more likely to have persistent anovulation due to immaturity of the HPO axis, and that can be normal. Other reasons may include things like hormonal contraceptive use, pregnancy, infection, coagulopathies, or tumors.
0: In those aged 19 to 39 or reproductive age, this is most frequently due to pregnancy, um, but should also be considered for structural lesions, anovulatory cycling use of hormonal contraception and hyperplasia.
1: And lastly, in the age group of 40 to menopausal age, these women may have ovulatory bleeding due to declining ovarian function, but can also have bleeding due to endometrial hyperplasia or carcinoma, endometrial atrophy, and structural changes like fibroids and polyps.
0: Once again, this is Nick.
1: This is Faye.
0: And this has been Creugs Over Coffee.
1: If you like this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use and give us a five-star rating and review.
0: Find us online on Twitter at KriagsOverCoff1, on Facebook at Over Coffee, on Instagram at Over Coffee, or if you want to sponsor the show, get a shout-out or some swag, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash coffee
1: For all of our adjunct materials, as well as information on our current episode, go ahead and go on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com.
0: Send us an email if you've got ideas for future shows, questions, or corrections. Creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.